Good evening from the Clark Athletic Center at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, and I welcome you to the first of three 90-minute debates between the Democratic candidate for president, Vice President Al Gore, and the Republican candidate, Governor George W. Bush of Texas. Debate prep is in full swing, and we continue on September 14th, Monday, on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Young. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, it is Bush versus Gore. Oh, we're putting it in a lockbox. We're going to sigh our way through this, and we won't forget Poland because the 2000 clash that started a 1,000 memes will be unspooled for you this Monday, September 14th. Follow me right now on twitch.tv slash Young. Download the app. Get it on the web. Starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. I will see you Monday. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. got a lot a lot a lot happening right now it's all happening immediately hello my name is justin robert young this is the politics 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 podcast we got a show for you today and it's chock full of craziness uh we have news exploding uh we have a new bob woodward book which we knew was coming out And we knew that Bob Woodward had interviewed President Trump several times, but the excerpts have bubbled, and it's a real story. Get this Atlantic for anonymous source who farted and where story out of my face. Get it out my face. Because we actually have somebody that, number one, I trust with anonymous sources. Number two, has the president on tape by his own uh, agreement. He didn't secretly tape the president. Tape the president with his own agreement. 18 interviews Woodward did with Donald Trump, President Donald Trump. And we're going to break down some of the biggest sound out of there. There's some quotes about coronavirus that have made some news and have rightly made news. You want to know why? Because it's an actual story. That'll be it for me complaining about the Atlantic story. Hopefully we can all forget about it. Can we all forget about it? We're all going to forget about it. Meanwhile, you've got some new polling coming out, specifically in the battleground states, that aren't so good for Joe Biden. Will these Bob Woodward quotes turn that tide? We have not one, but two interviews for you today. One of them is with the money man, Dave Leventhal of Business Insider. 
A story that's gotten some traction lately is the idea that Donald Trump is burning money way too fast. Joe Biden has had a record August and that the cash gap is closing. Is Trump 2020 poor? Will Donald Trump have to put his own money into the campaign? Is it because of reckless spending? Maybe they shouldn't have been running a four-year campaign for president. They should have saved their powder till right now. All those questions answered. But the get, and I mean this is a get. I think that this is the get in political podcasting. We have got a voice of his generation on this episode. A man who finally stood up because all politics are local, went to his city council in Lincoln, Nebraska, and spoke the truth. The fact that we should not be calling boneless chicken wings, boneless chicken wings. If you have not heard this clip, we're going to play it for you a little bit later in the episode. And we've got the man himself on. Anders Christensen joins the program. But first. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. people. To plenty of young people. So give me a a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of, uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you... Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to... Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Those, of course, are the voices of legendary Washington, D.C. journalist Bob Woodward and the President of the United States... Donald Trump. These are uh, a few clips that are released now via CNN with uh, his book, Woodward's book, Rage, uh, set to be published. It is probably the most candid view inside President Trump's mind as the coronavirus was beginning to mushroom. The clip that you just heard was from March 19th, and obviously the line that will be repeated is, I wanted to play it down. I have no idea how this is going to be spun. I have guesses. I have guesses. Kaylee McEnany's uh, apparently going to go on right now, and so we might have clips of that as uh, she speaks to reporters, but this is a political liability and this is a very ripe target for Donald Trump's coronavirus critics. It also is a moment where the conversation is going to switch back to coronavirus. It's going to be hard to talk about law and order if this does take hold. Now, if you are on the Trump side, what you will say is, well, of course, 
which which president in the middle of a crisis seeks to inflame? Which is kind of rich because that's kind of what Donald Trump does. But who who seeks to create a panic? If he understands the gravity of this, then what you are conflating of what he is saying here is that I didn't want to cause undue panic because there was already plenty of people that are running around like Chicken Little. And guess what? Them running around like Chicken Little got more people killed because they made rash decisions or they didn't follow the science. I was following the science. And uh, I, I didn't want to cause a panic. Where I think... Well, here, let, let, let's go to another clip here before I go to where I think there is a massive political liability for Donald Trump. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the, uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, it, goes, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air... You just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more for... deadly. This is five per... You know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Now, this clip is the earliest. This is from February 7th, uh, and it is the earliest clip we have of Woodward speaking to Trump about the virus. In fact, Woodward allegedly says in the book he expected that this conversation was almost going to be totally about the recently wrapped impeachment trial for which Donald Trump had prevailed. But it mostly was about his conversations with President Xi of China, wherein he described the deadly coronavirus. It's very clear that he believes two things. It's very deadly and it's airborne. Now, very deadly and airborne. It seems clear he also believes it will be in China. But very deadly and airborne. All right? Now, I, I literally just jumped out of recording here so I could watch Kaylee McEnany uh, respond to press questions about this so we can get our first blush of what the Trump administration is going to do to speak about it. She specifically addressed the clip you just heard and what Donald Trump was tweeting on the same day. On the same day the president tweeted that the virus would become weaker when the weather started getting warmer, he told Bob Woodward it was going to be deadly stuff. So why does Bob Woodward get the president's unvarnished opinion when the American people don't? The, he was giving Bob Woodward the same opinion he gave from the podium. And he said, I am here, I want to express calm. That is what a leader does. He has always shared the facts, he has always been forthright, and he's always followed the advice of his medical experts, like Dr. Fauci, who called his response impressive. Yes. He never said this was deadly stuff. Yes. The American people. Yes, he did. He acknowledged that hundreds of thousands could die, and he took the right response, which was to temporarily shut down the country, saved millions of lives, and so too have his therapeutics, so too will the vaccine that's being developed. 
One last back and forth between the Woodward clips and the McEnany press conference. Uh, This is a clip from May 6th. So remember where we are May 6th. We are... We had one of our top 10 deadliest days in uh, our our country to this point. May 6th, registered 2,578 dead. It was a very, very deadly day. But in that interview, Trump is being asked about a January 28th top secret intelligence briefing in which Robert O'Brien, one of his security advisors, told him something that O'Brien told Woodward was a moment of clarity that that Donald Trump is described uh, to have a, a very visible reaction to the following news. So now I understand... Because uh, it was too early. Uh, uh, your new national security advisor, O'Brien, right. said to you on yep. January 28th, Mr. President, this is going... This virus is going to be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Do you remember that? No, no. You don't? No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm sure if he said it, you know, I'm sure he said it. Nice guy. And here is the follow-up question today during the Kayleigh McEnany press conference. Information uh, we were getting. You had... O'Brien said that this virus could be the biggest threat to his presidency. Uh, Matt Pottinger agreed with that assessment. And then President Trump would later say that no one could have predicted this when his own experts were predicting this. Look, you're referring uh, to the intel community, and they've what the president knew was, and I've walked you through this before, on January 23rd, the intel community briefed President Trump for the first time about COVID, and the briefing said, uh, coronavirus from China is poised to spread globally, but the good news is that it is not deadly for most people. This is the information President Trump was getting, and the next time he was briefed on it was January 28th, when he was told that the spread was happening outside of China, and the deaths remained all inside China. He was told then that China is not sharing key data. Indeed, China was not, because as I noted to you on January 9th, uh, the World Health Organization said it does not readily transmit between people. And on January 14th, the World Health Organization said no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. Clearly, that was not true. Um, Even on February 29th, as the virus was spreading, the WHO uh, put political correctness first by opposing travel restrictions. Note that on January 31st, President Trump put into place those travel restrictions that Democrats called xenophobic. Shame on them. Okay, so let's identify the two key areas of their defense. Number one, they will go back through this very fast-evolving situation, and they will say, yes, it's very easy to pick winners and losers now. It's very easy. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But we can build a case. This is the Trump argument. We can build a case that a reasonable person would understand everything that you're seeing as a president trying to keep people calm and somebody that was possibly optimistically looking at his expert's worldview and trying to lead the country as best he could. But that doesn't matter. Because again, the Trump POV on this is it was a biblical flood. Yeah. 
Could we have thrown more sandbags? Sure, but there's no amount of sandbags that would have kept this out. We're a large, complicated country where a lot of people travel all over the place, and we try to shut down the travel as, as best we could. It's not our fault that it then spread so fast into Europe and that Europe wound up infecting uh, uh, New York and that New York was so irresponsible that it allowed so many people to die in nursing homes, blah, 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 whatever. If you want to start pointing fingers, we can start pointing fingers. What the Trump administration wants you to look at is what we're doing now. Therapeutics, vaccine, the economy is rebounding. We are surviving. The waters are receding and we are surviving. And that is the mark of true leadership. No, we're not quite out of this yet but we're damn farther than we would have been otherwise. And, and the greatest thing that the outsider president could have possibly done is to spend money and cut red tape. And that is what was sorely needed when it came to therapeutics and vaccines. That's what they are going to point their fingers to. But that's because they don't want you to focus on what I believe is an exhaust port on this Death Star that Biden needs to hit. Needs to hit. I'm telling you, if the Biden campaign looks at these clips and just says, yet more example of why Donald Trump is terrible, obviously we all know this, right? Then this will come and go. This will be a DC story. This will be a Twitter story. This will not play anywhere else. What you need to do is tell a story of hypocrisy. I shared with you what I thought to be a particularly keen insight by somebody that I don't think should have spoken at the DNC, but did anyway, Bill Clinton. His point was, why was Donald Trump's personal actions and the actions of his campaign different before July 3rd and after July 3rd. Before July 3rd, he wanted to pack 19,000 people into an arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Before July 3rd, he wanted to have another event in New Hampshire. Before July 3rd, he wouldn't let himself be photographed in a mask. After July 3rd, he tweeted a picture of himself in a mask. He called it patriotic. He restarted the coronavirus task force press conferences and made sure to pull a mask out of his pocket. What these tapes do is show a counterbalance in Trump's own voice that the Tulsa rally and everything surrounding it was nothing but hollow electioneering. And if you don't use that pivot point now, now that there's pressure on both sides of the board, if you don't try to break it in as much of a dramatic way that you can now, then I do think this story goes away. The Biden campaign needs to capitalize on this by telling a story creating the narrative of a man who did know better, who did know better, and in a moment of either hubris, ignorance, 
or kowtowing to Facebook groups, decided that he would endanger his own people anyway. And when that didn't pay dividends, he went back to what he knew since January. What he knew since January. Look, this might come off as old hat to some of you that already hate Trump and already think he did a bad job from the moment that everything started. But if you don't tell a compelling story with these data points, then you're leaving money on the table. Latinas, they get crazy. Blanquitas, they get crazy. Neritas, they get crazy. Yo mama, she gets crazy. Latinas, they get crazy. Blanquitas, they get crazy. Neritas, they get crazy. Yo mama, she gets crazy. Now jump up, let's be crazy. Oh yeah, baby, that's the sound of Florida about to screw everything up again. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right. Poll from Florida. A lot of battleground polls coming out right now, but I want to focus on this NBC News Marist poll from Florida that has the race tied 48-48 to give you a, a, a sense of where the NBC Marist polling averages are. They also put out a poll today that has Biden plus nine in Pennsylvania. So this does not seem to be, this isn't like, like, like the Trafalgar group or Rasmussen that tends to weight things more for Trump. This is a Biden-friendly poll. But one of the things that they found is Biden being literally underwater with Hispanic votes. Trump with 50% of the Hispanic vote in Florida, Biden with 46 Now, I know what you're going to say. Florida, Cubans, Miami, blah, blah, blah. And indeed, uh, even Armando, a.k.a. Pitbull, who you heard at the beginning of this segment, is somebody that's been very friendly to, the, to Republican politicians, including Marco Rubio. There is a strong conservative uh, streak amongst Miami Cubans, but that is not the entirety of Florida's rich and diverse Latino culture. Indeed. You have people from all throughout Central America, South America, Mexico. But the key was supposed to be Puerto Rico. Remember that you had uh, the the mayor of San Juan after uh, Hurricane Maria. That was being, it was a very line in the sand kind of moment that Donald Trump was mistreating the island of uh, Puerto Rico and was not helping it recover as fast as it could. Since Puerto Ricans are American citizens, moving from Puerto Rico to Florida, which many did, was thought to tip the scales for Democrats. This is a uh, Associated Press story from January 10th in Polk County, which is part of the I-4 corridor, the connection in the middle of the state between Tampa and Daytona. Orlando's there in the middle. It has become increasingly important in Florida politics. Hispanic registered voter population has grown 19,000 from 2006 and 65,000 from 2018. 15% of the total uh, and from uh, uh, is up from only 3% in 1980. By 2018, Hispanics made up 23% of the county's 700,000 residents, which means that the number of potential voters is likely to increase in 2020. 
the influx of Puerto Ricans who by and large are Democratic voters was supposed to tip the scale. So the question then becomes, is Biden not reaching out? Is Trump doing a better job of appealing to them? We do not know. But those numbers are not good. In fact, the rise in general of the Hispanic vote for Donald Trump and the black vote for Donald Trump. At some point, when things stop lighting on fire, literally, uh, <laughs> go ahead and everybody Google uh, uh, what Oakland and San Francisco look like today because I am walking, I'm just looking outside my window right now, and it, it, it looks like Blade Runner 2049. It is orange and insane. So I'm sorry if I have a bit of an apocalyptic energy about me today. But when things stop lighting on fire, I want to do a larger deep dive into the rise of black and Hispanic support for Donald Trump. Because I do think it's one of those things that does not jive with the narrative. But if we don't wrap our head around it, then we're not going to have a full picture of what's going to happen. But uh, this is not a, this is, these are not good figures. These are not good figures for Biden because I suspect that the race will continue to tighten and uh, uh, it will not bode well unless he can turn his tide there. Let's look at some more battleground polls that have come in over the last 24 hours. CNBC change research has uh, a Biden up across the board. Biden plus four in Pennsylvania. Biden plus six in Wisconsin. Biden plus four in Arizona and Biden plus three in Florida. So he is he is up there, although I believe that is within the margin of error. Morning consult also has largely good news for Biden. The best news is in Michigan, where they have him up 10. Wisconsin is plus eight. Pennsylvania plus uh, plus five and Florida plus five. However, they've got Trump up in Ohio. Plus five. The real key here is Trump has to win Florida. There's there's no way I see him winning uh, the Electoral College without winning Florida. He's got to do it, right? So Biden can play in Florida. Biden can win in Florida. That's huge. If he can't, then, then he can't. If he still does well in the Midwest, specifically Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, I mean... Honestly, it's Ohio, Pennsylvania, and uh, Florida. If one candidate wins all three of them, it's over. If you start to get into the splits there, it's a different story. But you want to watch Pennsylvania, you want to watch Ohio, and you want to watch Florida. Too many electoral votes, and they are generally signs that other states surrounding them are going to tip a certain way as well. I I won't take up too much of your time here. My name is Andrew Christensen. Uh, I live at 1212 Twin Ridge Road. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, 
boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. We need to teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken, and it's delicious. Amongst all the literal fires that are happening and all the serious conversation about our political uh, apocalypse that is upon us, there was one video that went viral that got sent to me because it rippled across the, the political spectrum. We can call them buffalo-style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. And that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long. And we know it because we feel it in our bones. Thank you. That is the voice of Ander Christensen. He uh, took the bold stance to go to a local Lincoln, Nebraska town hall and voice his opinion about boneless buffalo wings and the fact that they are indeed saucy nugs. He also joins us on the Politics, Politics, Politics program. Welcome to the show, Ander. Hey, thank you very much. I'm glad to be on. So where does this start? So ever since I was in college, my buddies and I, we all got broken up with within a two-week period. And so this group of just depressed guys college-age guys we just wandered from wing joint to wing joint <laughs> for months and it was always the thing that we would argue about too is that you know one of us one person would inevitably order saucy nuts yeah and you'd have to make fun of them for it like oh dainty man using the fork right can't get his beard wet and it's always been something i've been thinking about and then later I heard on, on the, the Night Attack podcast, uh, there were joke, you guys were joking about how people should just go to their city council meetings and bring it up. And I thought, what a great idea. This so, is something I've been annoyed with for so long. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So that that's is what, that's where it came from. That is so, so, so funny. It's very, very funny for a few reasons. Number one, uh, the Night Attack show that Brian Brushwood and I do both he and I joke about how we just have immediate show Alzheimer's. Like we will, we will say things. And if you're listening to it, like I mean, I, I can refer to things that I've heard on podcasts that I love that happened years ago. And they feel like yesterday, but for the night attack show specifically, we have no clue what we just said. So you saying that we literally told you to do this or we said that somebody should go do this totally escaped me and I will confirm without even speaking to him that it totally escaped Brian. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. It was on a, one of your happy hours and I just, it's been, it was months ago. That's so, so funny. I had just been waiting honestly until things calmed down a little bit. So I wasn't going to step on anybody's toes who was talking about something important. <laughs> well, now here you are. You've, you've punched through a politics show that includes uh, taping of the president talking about the coronavirus, uh, of volatile polls in Florida. And we are about to get to talking about the money situation. But this is how important this story is. Mostly, I want to speak to you about 
the reaction because it seemed like this thing went viral for all the kind of right reasons. It was funny. It was quick. It was clever. It showed civ uh, uh, civic engagement. When did you realize that this thing had blown up far beyond what you thought was just uh, a silly joke to a podcast? So, so I did this, I did it on Monday night and Tuesday, my coworkers were making fun of me because they said it was cringy and awkward. And then Wednesday morning, when I got into work, I opened up Twitter, which I never do. And I saw that I, there's somebody had posted the video and had 600,000 views. And in 10 minutes, I watched it go to 900,000 and I started pit sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I just started like getting so nervous. I ended up having to go tell my boss. I was like, I know that I've got a bunch of experiments and everything lined out for the day. I'm going to have to go home. And he didn't get it. He didn't understand it until that night when he saw me on in the New York Times. And he's like, <laughs> you can take off the rest of the week. <laughs> Oh man. So, uh, so what, what do you do for a living without getting too specific into, into where you work? What is your profession? Uh, I'm a chemical engineer and I work in a research lab where we're building a cancer diagnostics tool. So you're doing real stuff. Like this is a real, you, you have, you have a very important real job. I, I have a, a real job doing real science that really does things yeah <laughs> uh now I, I spend all day with introverts the end of 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 the clip uh the the one of the men up there on the what i'm assuming is a city council uh or or equivalent says that they are your your father is that true yeah yeah that's my dad uh he had no idea that i was going to come that day he had no idea that i was going to say anything but uh he knows me well enough. As soon as I walked in, he rolled his eyes and was like, oh, okay, this is going to be weird. <laughs> uh, all right. So this blows up. It goes viral. People are talking about it. Uh, what is the first interaction that you get that is beyond where you thought that this would go? Is it somebody asking you for an interview? Is it uh, somebody in, in Lincoln reacting to you? Uh, it was interviews um, because I, I don't go out much, uh, <laughs> especially not now. Yeah. It, it, I was getting asked for interviews from uh, Canada, like all over Canada. Apparently the Canadians love wings. I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, I've been on Irish radio twice now. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it's been the interviews that I've been asked to do. And it's been crazy hearing that all over the world people are making jokes about this and enjoying I saw that you also did a thing with the Nebraska football team right yes yes they reached out to me because uh they there'd been rumors on Twitter apparently that uh Scott Frost was going to be announcing that the Huskers were going to be playing football again but they had nothing actual to say and so for their five o'clock Friday news dump they just were going to put me in there but uh, I told them I wasn't going to do anything unless I thought it was funny. And I thought interrupting Scott Frost was funny. <laughs> so this was literally just because this is, again, we've, we've spoken on the show before about the Big Ten uh, uh, canceling football for the fall season. This is something that is now in flux and they are uh, deciding whether or not to do it. So in the midst of something that had actual reporters there, 
you get the call to just go up, interrupt the head coach, and talk about how boneless wings are not indeed wings. They are saucy nugs. Absolutely. And it was great because Scott Frost was like, I hate doing scripts, so it's great. You just interrupt me, and he just left. Yeah. <laughs> just walked out. That's great. That is great. Uh have you gotten like endorsement opportunities? Like this seems this seems tailor made for for a, 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 a wing stop or or a Buffalo Wild Wings. Like I don't want to uh, give you any like corporate entanglements here, but is this something that you've gotten uh, a reach out on? You know, I have talked and I'm in talks with a couple of different companies. I'm not going to say who. Sure, but uh, they're they've. They've been talking about some brand ambassadorship, which is going to be fun. And I've been talking with my wife about starting something, just the, just the two of us on the side. So, All right. Now let's get to the serious uh, conversation here. Because while I do agree that in terms of the classification of boneless buffalo wings, uh, uh, it is a misnomer. It's more of a description of the style, the flavor palette and, and preparation of the wing as opposed of, of Buffalo wings, as opposed to the physical wing of it. But are you telling me that there's never a time for a fork and knife wing? Like you're in the airport, you're on a layover. Maybe you got a suit on or something like that. There's never a time for it. All I'm saying is that the name has to be different. I personally will never eat one. Mostly because at this point now I can't. Uh, <laughs> You're right. No, you like it would be it would be a scandal. You would be a fraud if you were caught eating a boneless buffalo wing. You know, I do see the point to it. I was asked somebody asked me, uh, "What do I think uh, President Trump or President Biden eat?" And I genuinely think both of them use a fork and a knife to eat uh, boneless wings. Yeah, you know, I. Both of them, I assume, would might go finger first because Trump is a fan of fried chicken. You can't be a fan That's of fried true. chicken and not go finger first on it. But then again, Trump is also a germaphobe. Biden might. I don't know. Biden's been a politician longer, so he probably thinks a little bit more about that one drip of sweet, sweet buffalo sauce on his uh, collar or something like that. Exactly. And I also think that like just the the outside view of it, having to constantly be worried about what you look like, I don't think either of them would risk putting sauce on their face. Yeah. In general, you're probably right there. Uh, OK, now this is is news. We're going to break a little news here. You are preparing for a big project uh, of where can people go uh, in preparation for something that that you, you hinted to me before, but you got something uh, launching here. Uh, uh, where can people go to support you? Uh, the best way to go to it is go to my Twitter. Uh, go to uh, handsome duck, uh, handsome one two one duck, and uh, I'm going to be launching a website here very shortly. And I'll get more information about how uh, I'm going to be going on the campaign trail. So you're leaving. You're leaving Lincoln. And you are going to bring this message and, and people across the country, specifically between Lincoln and Washington, D.C., might be able to suggest their favorite place that needs a campaign stop from somebody who is bringing your message across the country. Absolutely. I want I'm going to be putting out polls. I'm going to be getting people's input. I want to know where people think the best place to stop for wings in their town is between here and D.C. That way. Uh, I'll be able to stop there. I'll be able to talk to the people who own it. Right now, business, 
restaurants are hurting. Yeah. They're hurting so bad right now. And to do anything to help alleviate that just a little bit would be fantastic for me. See, now you sound like a real politician. This is good. This is good. Uh, 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 and and we're, we're, I'm going to make you. I'm going to keep texting you now that I have your phone number every five minutes until you change uh, saucynugs.com to your to your Twitter handle, at least for now. So people don't have to remember your Twitter handle. But but Saucy Nugs, again, this has been the iconic uh, uh, statement over the last week in terms of uh, uh, this viral story. Saucy Nugs, just remember Saucy Nugs, saucynugs.com. That's what everybody needs to uh, keep in mind and uh, Ander, uh, uh, hopefully we will keep in touch. And at some point, I would love to share chicken wings with you because chicken wings are are probably my favorite food. They're they're the great they're the great mediator of all people. Indeed, indeed. Uh, all right, thank you so much for joining the show, Ander. Oh, not a problem. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Guys, there's only one podcast like the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast, and that means that it needs your help to stay alive. Who else is chasing down the saucy nugs guy? Who else is grabbing Dave Leventhal so we can explain the money situation? Who else is combing through all of this Bob Woodward sound? Who else is reviewing all of of the most iconic debates for you live on the Twitch channel. Who's sending you a free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com? Me. And I I would like money. <laughs> I'd probably do it for free. I've done it for free for most of my career. But if you'd like to make sure that it keeps happening, you can go over to takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 level gets two bonus podcasts each and every week. Takepoliticsseriously.com. Our guest today is the senior Washington correspondent for Business Insider. He's also our money man. Welcome back to the show, Dave Leventhal. How you doing, Dave? It is wonderful to be back with you, Mr. Mr. Young. Always, always, always a pleasure. And, you know, this was something that I, I knew in the back of my head. We're due for another money conversation because this is pretty much the last time that money really matters. Right. Like in, in this lead up to the final push, because everybody's going to empty their tanks by the time that we get any closer to this. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that this is like that last, you know, scene in Battlestar Galactica where they go at flank speed and just unload every last <laughs> munition that they have. And, and, and that's it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, let's put it this way. We we still have a lot of time to spend money and nobody wants to be in a position where they think they have anything less but unlimited money to spend uh, over the course of whatever election days are, are left. And of course, there's always the, the theory in the back of uh, one or two or a million people's minds that this election is going to go beyond yeah. November 3rd, that we will have election overtime. And, and it might be, might be, you know, one inning, it might be two, it might be 10. And yeah. as a result, uh, the parties, the campaigns, Everyone who's involved, the super PACs who are spending money, want to make sure that, that they've got every cent accounted for and that they've raised every cent that's possibly out there to raise. And uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now. 
Something tells me, though, if we are in the kind of uh, morass that we were in Florida in 2000, that either party is going to have a hard time raising money, right? <laughs> uh, if we're in that kind of morass, I, I, I think uh, all bets are off with, with everything. And, and it largely depends on what kind of morass we're in. Are yeah. we in a morass of hanging chads or are we in a morass of the Russians have infiltrated the election system in such a way as to cast complete doubt on the validity of it in the first place or, you know, something in between. So as a result, I, I, I think every contingency is being planned for and the bean counters are, are trying again to make sure that if, if something truly monumental happens in a very bad way. If everything goes to hell in a handbasket, what's it going to take in order to fight it in the courts or, or otherwise just keep things going so that you don't run out of cash along the way? So one of the things that I like to do at this stage of the game, when messaging is so tight amongst each campaign, they've got their narratives, we had our conventions, is to just to look for the little things that come whenever in November that this is done will be then exploded and blown up into this is the reason why this candidate lost. And I think on the Democratic side, it's the fact that it seems as if now is the first time that they are really even considering putting money into traditional door-knocking, get-out-the-vote operations, which they have not due to COVID uh, up until this point. Trump has, and and to be clear, like, census workers are out there knocking on doors. Uh, but just so you could give us a sense, how much is on the ground offices and door knocking events, how much money does that normally soak up in a campaign's budget? Oh, millions and millions and millions of dollars every month. And the closer you get to election day, the more and more it becomes. I, I think it's important to note, and, and this is kind of kind of flown under the radar, but both campaigns have saved a heck of a lot of money by virtue or lack thereof of uh, of COVID because they haven't been able to travel nearly as much. They haven't had operations across the country nearly as robust as they would have otherwise. So they've, they've been raising money at a, a historically high clip, at least over the past several months. And, and yet they're not spending the money in the same way that they almost assuredly would be spending it, but for COVID. So both sides have more money than they probably thought they were going to have at this stage of the game. And, and their burn rate, even though it's it's quite high, they've been able to conserve money and even add to their bottom line as time has gone by. So no matter what either side says, well, we don't have enough money, we're worried about money running out, they got a heck of a lot of money right now. Yeah. And Donald Trump, in fact, if you compare to where he's at today, to where he was four years ago, it's not quite three times more than he had available <laughs> uh, to him in his own campaign. Now, hey, different circumstances right now. He's a president of the United States. Things are incredibly competitive and and, and a lot's going on with COVID. And and sure, you, you add it all up and, and it's it's a lot, you know, going to be a lot of money that he's got to put out the door. But he's not poor. He's not broke. He's not insolvent. His campaign isn't running on fumes. <laughs> Quite the contrary. And we're not even talking here about the national party committees, which have their own pot of yeah. money, and the super PACs, which have their own pot of money. If you add all of that up, both sides have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars each when, when you take it in aggregate. 
and with fewer than 60 days left, you know, I mean, they, they could almost not raise another cent and, and still be able to get across the goal line. Uh, they wouldn't be as competitive as the other side. But then again, Donald Trump had a lot less money than Hillary Clinton did four years ago, and he still won the presidency. And so he did okay. there, there is a little bit of history to this. Well, if we flip it over to the other side and you look at the thing that people will point to if Donald Trump becomes the first uh, first term incumbent since Jimmy Carter to lose uh, uh, the presidency, it will be because of his lost summer. And not only uh, in the reaction to the coronavirus, but also, as you alluded to before, now the very famous... Uh, a super expenditure heavy summer of the former campaign manager of Trump 2020, who, according to a New York Times article, was spending $110,000 for magnetic bags and drivers when they shouldn't have otherwise had them, ad spends in Washington, D.C., which may or may not have only been there so Donald Trump could see his ads on television because there's not really going to be a lot of persuadable voters in the Beltway. Uh is this how how true is this that they have recklessly spent uh, compared to other campaigns historically? Well, first of all, the the ghost of George H. W. Bush will be thanking you for for forgetting that uh, he lost after one term to to Bill Clinton. No, 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 so, no, third, uh, no. But he was the third term for the party. So, oh, so okay. that's that's Fair my enough. point. That's Fair my enough. point. Is it's hard. It's hard. Not hard to, for the not same to party to keep. You at all. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're, it's, it's hard. Hard for the the same party to keep it for three terms. Four terms, unless your FDR is uh, very very hard. Well, well, Don, Donald Trump. I mean, look, he his finances, uh, e even though they are as solid as they are right now, <laughs> have not come uh, without some extreme controversy, externally and internally. So you mentioned the reporting that's been done around Brad Parscale. Uh, we had a report that came out uh, over the summer that showed that the Trump campaign is actually doing their own internal audit of the finances. And they, they said, uh, if you believe them, that it's not directed specifically at Brad Parscale, who is now no longer the campaign manager, <laughs> but a, a, a full sweeping accounting of, of the way that spending has been going on. Um, and also, too, we just reported as well that it's entirely possible, and I talked to about a dozen different former DOJ and FEC officials uh, for a piece, that the bottom line there was uh, that you might be looking right now at uh, campaign violations or the uh, thoughts of them, the accusations of them, the you know the 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 possibility of them. They're being reviewed by federal regulators and even the DOJ in, in a criminal sense right now. the The biggest question right now is whether the Trump campaign has in their spending not been giving money to a an actual vendor, but using basically shell vendors. Uh, so instead of giving money to, you know, the Acme advertising company, you're giving money to the Acme advertising company, which in turn is then sending it to a subcontractor and another subcontractor or a sub subcontractor that may or may not be Brad Parscale himself or a Trump family member or whatever the yeah. case may be. Now, none of this has been substantiated and nobody has been accused uh, formally of anything or, or indicted of anything. But these are real things that are going to dog the Trump campaign, whether Donald Trump becomes president for a second term or he loses the presidency. And again, in talking with lots and lots of sources who, who have worked at high levels of government and the DOJ and elsewhere, uh, the, the kind of general consensus, if there's one to be had, is that whether it's these campaign shenanigans 
or whether it's any of about five or six other things, Donald Trump is going to have a legal mess on his hand, not for months, but for years to come after he's president of the United States. And, and campaign issues are part and parcel of that. You know, it would make a lot of those Parscale stories make a little bit more sense, too, because, you know, I don't know if you read the New York Magazine article about the Trump campaign that Olivia Nuzzi wrote, but uh, boy, yep. boy, are there some knives sharpened inside the Trump campaign for Brad Parscale and his pool in Florida. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he's somebody who, on one hand, has uh, exceeded every expectation probably anyone but maybe himself and Donald Trump had for him four or five years ago. And, and he's done something that people thought was unthinkable, which was get Donald Trump elected. Was he the linchpin? Was he the only person who was responsible for that? Of course not. I mean, that, that's ludicrous to think that, that just one campaign operative would do it. But he did some absolutely amazing things four years ago. Uh, he set the groundwork, I think, for a different type of campaign that was pretty much the only kind of campaign Donald Trump could run and win on. And, and the magic began to run out. If, if the magic was still there, then uh, he would still likely be running the Trump campaign uh, at this point. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's dicey. Uh, there's infighting constantly within the Trump campaign. I mean, that's any political campaign to sure. yeah. some degree. But, I, I mean, this is Donald Trump for decades. Donald Trump is always, you know, it's always been about Donald Trump. So in, in the fray and frenzy to please the boss, uh, oftentimes, yeah, the knives are not only going to come out, but they're going to be as sharp as a knife could be. All right. Well, I mean, aside from, I think, journalistically, and if we look, just look at campaign reportings, like, there is just something amazing, even in the world of backbiting campaign staffers on how much the Trump campaign talks to the press. Like it, it just, from the very beginning, it's DNA of just being kind of a gathering of mercenaries that all secretly hated each other or were jockeying for position to the fact that it didn't have uh, a much of a chance by the numbers leading into 2016. And now whatever it's mutated into, one day when these campaigns are all back to really, really, really being disciplined, we might miss it. I mean, it just it it, it, it it gives us a little bit more of a look into exactly what's happening, at least the chaos side of it. Well, there's so much talk, especially this week, about anonymous sources. And, ah, yes. uh, who are these people who are talking? Uh, who are these people who are dishing? Well, look, the fact of the matter is, because I've talked to more than I could probably count off the top of my head, people who work in the Trump campaign, the Trump administration, who are, are willing to talk. Now, they know that they will be fired. They will be immediately dismissed if they put their name on the record. I, I don't like using anonymous sources any more than I absolutely positively have to. But if it's uh, required to print a story or if you don't use it, you don't print a story, then you do have to consider it. So I, I think that some reporters, uh, sure, can be criticized for using it too quickly, too easily, uh, that, that people are cavalier about it. Uh, I know what my standards are, and they're very high for using anonymous sources, but there are some times that you do have to use them in order to be able to tell a very important story that the public needs to know. So that all being said, the Trump campaign just talks a ton, and the Trump <laughs> they administration, they just talk a ton. They love and it. And if, if anyone out there thinks that these sources are just coming from the ether, okay, they're voices from the heaven. No, we know who these anonymous sources are. We know they are real. We talk to them. We meet them. We see them. We, yeah. <laughs> before COVID, we went out 
you know, and had dinner or beer or coffee or whatever the case may be. And uh, yeah, they're, they're about as chatty as uh, any, any group of, or or class of politicos out there. And, and and probably about 10 times more chatty than folks in Obama world were, who were notoriously tight lipped. I think because Obama world knew that they could go to another campaign. Like we have no idea that Trump could win. Trump could lose. We have no idea where these operatives are going to be. We have, I mean, and I think they don't either. They don't know like, oh, well, you want to know what? I think I'm probably going to think about jumping to Nikki Haley's campaign or I'm going to jump to Pence's campaign. Who knows? Who knows what those campaigns even look like? Uh, uh, One quick thing about anonymous sources, because I do, and this might be something that that will come off as hypocritical because I roasted the Atlantic story on Friday's episode. But like, uh, I think for campaign stories, it's a different standard. Mostly because those are in-process things that tend to be, at their best, high school slam books. You know, they are their internal politics about who didn't refill the coffee grinder at the right time. And and if, if you're like that stuff, I think is inconsequential enough that it's like, yeah, everybody's trying to let everybody know that it's not going to be their fault when something goes wrong and they want to take credit when it goes right. So there's a different story. But but certainly with the Trump campaign, boy, boy, do they like chat. Uh, let's let's real quick, though, swing over to the Biden campaign, because. The money news for them has been rosy. They advertised a massive haul in August, which, of course, was their convention and the naming of Kamala Harris as the vice presidential nominee. How much of that number is because of Kamala Harris's famed connection to the money people in California? It didn't hurt. Uh, But then again, remember that her fame connection to the money people in California wasn't exactly helping her all that much when she was running for president herself. Uh, She had a pretty modest fundraising effort during her short presidential campaign. So it was more less of that and, and much more of just the fact that she was the vice presidential nominee and she was somebody who is unlike any vice presidential candidate that we've had in the history of the United States uh, by her background uh, by uh, you know her her stature I mean she's she's a a vice presidential candidate who uh, really is is a monumental and historical figure I think you can fairly say so that generated a lot of excitement. The convention generated a lot of excitement. You had Joe Biden kind of hitting, you know, the general election stride at that point. And so that that's all you know, that's all good things for the Democrats. If you if you like the Democrats and support them. Um, also, too, there is a lot of capacity on the Democratic side. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that there are still a ton of people out there who have not donated to Joe Biden. There are a lot of people who are on the wealthier side who've not maxed out their contribution to Joe Biden. Donald Trump's been running for president since the day of his yeah. inauguration. Literally, he filed paperwork. We've talked about this before. Yeah. It's unprecedented. So, you know, he's running into the trouble of his very enthusiastic, eager supporters who are willing to, you know, get the credit card out and make a big donation. I mean, they might be maxed out and they've been maxed out for a year or two. You know, at this point, Joe Biden hasn't had that issue because Joe Biden was running in a primary. Joe Biden's only been the general election candidate for 
a few months. And that's just a reality to it. So he's still got that capacity. So there's more money potentially on the table for Joe Biden, which is why he's been getting the big influx right now, Donald Trump, to a much lesser degree. But Donald Trump was back in 2017 raising tens of millions of dollars <laughs> toward his reelection campaign yeah. when Joe Biden was still trying to figure out whether he was even going to run for president in the first place. So that that's a big difference that that often in the fray of all of this gets uh, gets lost a bit. Uh, but it's real and it's coming home to roost because, again, we're within 60 days. And what Donald Trump did back in, you know, mid 2018 and some convention that, you know, some uh, rally that he did or some fundraiser that he conducted, I mean, doesn't really matter all that much now. And, you know, things like, hey, Donald Trump put an ad up that cost $11 million during the Super Bowl. I mean, nobody's talking about that right now. And except if you're scratching your head wondering, well, you know, would, would Donald Trump really like that $11 million back right now to put into some get out the vote effort or whatnot? Whether Donald Trump puts in his own money during these last few days remains to be seen. I think people are making a much bigger deal about it uh, than it really is. And hey, this is Donald Trump who back in 2015, when he first ran for president, <laughs> said, I am going to fund my campaign. I don't need anyone else's money and what happened almost immediately within a couple of months. He started taking other people's money and he's been taking other people's money ever since to run his campaign. It would take a, a pretty big problem on the Trump front, like poll numbers cratering like crazy or Trump just kind of going for broke uh, in a way that that would even under these circumstances would be unexpected for Donald Trump to say, I'm going to write a check for hundred million dollars. And then there is a question of whether that would matter all that much if yeah. it's 30 days before the election. I mean, heck, people are going to be starting to vote soon. And so the game is afoot right now. And no matter how much money Donald Trump puts in, it, one could argue that it would have helped him a lot more to do that, say, in April, May or June, as opposed to, you know, July, August or now September or October when we are really at the finish line. One last question on this race, and that is how real is the evaporating cash on hand gap between Trump and Biden? And does it matter? It, again, I mean, both candidates have a ton of money. Joe Biden, as of last count, which was going into August, had about 90 million. Trump had uh, around 120 million. So $30 million difference in a national campaign with two months out really isn't probably going to matter all that much, particularly when Joe Biden, we know he had a big, 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 huge historic August. So so that gap is probably going to go away. It's more or less a wash campaign to campaign. The Republican National Committee has a ton of money, more than the Democratic National Committee. And then the Biden super PACs, they together have more money than the Trump super PACs, and they can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. And on Trump's side or Biden's side, if somebody wants to come in, some billionaire, and dump $10 million or $20 million of their own into one of these super PACs, well, they can do that. They could do that today. They could do that a week before the election. And, and they have in the past. So there's surprise money that can come in unlimited fashion right at the end, too, through that other avenue. And, and that can be a big deal as well. Those super PACs oftentimes will pay a lot more money to advertise on behalf of a candidate or in support of a candidate uh, than the campaigns themselves because of the way that ad rates work. So that's another story for another time. But bottom line again here is that we pretty much have both sides just 
armed to the teeth with cash and yeah. and they're not they're not hurting so they're they're going to hurt each other and they're going to do that a lot <laughs> and they got the cash to do it and and yeah just just to underline again this is without the the liability of opening the kind of offices that they have i mean cuz i can only imagine what rent costs alone in a normal national race like this when you're opening multiple offices per state and you're often opening them downtown in major uh, metropolitan areas that's that in and of itself has to be a massive liability that they're not facing absolutely less money to spend on offices less money to spend on overhead less money to spend on travel you look at these campaign finance reports and you know you look at the airfare line items or the taxi or uber line items or the rental car hotel line items they're just so thin compared to what they would have been uh, without the coronavirus in play and thin compared to what we saw four years ago. So, yeah, that uh, that's real money that is we don't like to, you know, obviously talk about things in terms of savings in the midst of a pandemic. But yeah, for just a, a you know, cold blooded accounting green eyes shady look at what's going on here. Yeah, that's uh, th- those are real savings. Uh, that's money that the campaign just simply doesn't have to spend when I thought it was going to have to. That's why people come to this podcast, Dave. They come here for the green eyed shady look at, uh, <laughs> at the way the politics really operates. Uh, okay, enough with this sideshow. Let's get to the real main event of 2020. And that, of course, is the quixotic campaign of the birthday party zone, Kanye West. Uh, uh, a very, I mean, if we looked at Trump camp, uh, Trump in 2016 and said, man, what a ramshackle chaotic enterprise, then uh, I can't even uh, imagine to explain to somebody that Kanye would announce he's running for president and then start crying on stage saying that he wanted to abort his daughter uh, uh, and then take a month to file his FEC reports, which for anybody who's waited for a Kanye West album is really not out of character for him. Uh, What did we see in Kanye's FEC report? How much has he spent and what is he spending it on? Uh, so he loaned about $6.7 million worth of uh, his own money. So he says, according to this report, which was uh, about uh, t- 15 days late, and uh, he may yet have to deal with uh, some fallout from that. But uh, he spent money on, on a variety of things that we expected him to spend money on, which is trying to get on the ballot all over the place, legal fees, uh, consultants. And and this has really been the the whole you know, totality of his effort is just trying to get on the ballot uh, in states and and being pretty darned unsuccessful uh, when you when you look at all fifty states. Uh, in the end, he he may only be on a handful of ballots because he's gotten kicked off some. Some are still being considered right now. And he just simply didn't make the deadlines uh, for others or wasn't able to get the signature requirements or the money lined up or whatever the case may be. So this is basically, you know, the Kanye West show. he he had, Effectively, nobody donate to his campaign, save for a handful of contributors. Trump and Biden are they're measuring their contributions in in the hundreds of thousands every month uh, in terms of actual people who are making contributions. And Kanye, you could pretty much use your two hands to count how many people donated to his campaign. So this campaign's a joke. Okay, yeah. I, I think you can objectively say that this is an absolute disaster. It's a joke. It, it, it is getting his name in the headlines a whole lot. It's giving him attention if that's what he's going for. And who knows? 
then then yeah, I guess he succeeded in in that regard. But you know, when it comes down to it, like Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate, or Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian Party candidate, they they're probably going to get many, 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 many more tens of thousands of votes than Kanye West. Uh, you you can you know choose to not hold me to that uh, if if you <laughs> would like, especially in November if I'm wrong, but. Uh, you know, they're on the ballot in most or, or you know, almost all the states. And in, yet, you know, Kanye is just really going to be a bit player in, in a couple of states and is probably just going to have very little bearing, if any at all. Now, the one thing that was fascinating from these reports is that he spent money with a couple of firms that have very, very close ties to the Trump campaign, which is underscoring the notion that this is just a, a, a you know, sort of a wholly owned subsidiary of the Trump campaign, the Kanye West campaign, that is, and, and that Kanye is just trying to is serving a purpose to siphon votes away. So. So let me let me let me ask you a question with that, though, because uh, if, if we're going to look at it like Kanye West wakes up one day in Wyoming and uh, uh, after day three of not taking his bipolar medication decides I'm absolutely going to run for president. I don't care if, if people say it's impossible. Everybody says everything is impossible to me. I'm going to run for president. Okay. So he probably calls the two people that he knows in politics and he says, how do I run for president? And they say, well, you got to get on the ballot. Okay, cool. How do I do that? The people that are consultants to get petitions together and, and put people on the ballot, correct me if I'm wrong, really only come in two classes, right? It's Republican and Democrat. And so is it that odd that he would be working with Republican operatives to get on the ballot? It's not like there's a lot of independent, unbiased versions of people who work in that field, are there? No, you and you make a good point. Uh, but at the same time, too, there are lots of people within the genre of politics that you may be operating in. If you lean toward the Republican Party, there are definitely many different firms and many different people that you could go to. Kanye West chose to go with people who were very close, at least in certain regards, to the Trump operations uh, of, of uh, current and past times. Uh, could they have gone with another Republican firm? Absolutely. Uh, th did they do that? No, they did not. And uh, so it shows two things. Number one, that Kanye is choosing to go the route of the Republican Party, which, OK, you know, his choice. He is, he is, he is, he is a pro-life candidate. Yeah. He is a religious pro-life candidate. So that would that would yeah. tend to fit. For sure. And uh, so and yeah, he, he spent a lot of money with them, too. He also went with one particular firm that doesn't have a, a very good ethical track record. Uh, so and especially now with uh, things being kind of as shady as they were with some of the signature collection efforts uh, that we now know <laughs> is the case. Uh, there there could be some fallout there, too. It, it's uh, it remains to be seen on that end. But it is possible that uh, some of these Efforts, if you can call them that, will definitely come under legal scrutiny, either at the state or the federal level. So I don't think the story has fully been told uh, on that end either. Yeah, yeah. I guess just following Kanye, none of this seems odd to me, or at least none of this seems out of character. This all well, seems like Kanye is is just, I mean, honestly, what it feels like is he woke up one day and he texted Jared Kushner and he said, I want to run for president. Who should I talk to? And Jared Kushner forwarded to phone numbers. And that's, that's that. 
Well, you, you know, one one thing just in in retrospect is, is that he Kanye West had he chosen to do it the right way. Yes. This been been actually kind of a quasi real thing. He could have been a force in this election. OK, I agree. He could have gotten he could have gotten on the ballot in in most, if not all of the states. It, it's if you have pretty much unlimited resources to at least get yourself on the ballot. Sure, it's hard, but you can hire people to do the hard work. OK, you can you can pay your several tens of millions of dollars to get that done and get it done right and get yourself on the ballot and and be a real candidate. But it was just this haphazard, completely, you know, half-assed effort, uh, non-effort. And yeah, it's really probably going to amount to a whole lot of nothing, yeah. uh, at least in terms of the, the votes being count. Oh, I, 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 especially if he can't, and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to get on the ballot in major swing States that might like actually matter. Right. And I think it's, it's even, even then the idea that he would be a write-in candidate that could disrupt a thin margin in a swing state was something that I think was far-fetched. And, and now uh, considering as we should have predicted when it started and he, you know, half the ballot deadlines had passed. This is, this is going to be, uh, you know, less, less than nothing. All I, right. I would, I would concur. All right. Uh, Dave Leventhal, you are the money man, not only on this podcast, but also of course, writing for business insider. Uh, you, you hinted at some stuff you have coming up. Anything else that people should be on the lookout for? I, I think people should be looking out for a lot of uh, unique and original enterprising and investigative stuff. Our, our swashbuckling team of seven, soon to be eight, now has. Uh, I mean, we're, we're a bureau that, that's a couple months old. We're a very baby bureau here, but uh, we're growing up fast. And uh, yeah, if you care about legal issues regarding the Trump and Biden campaign, keep an eye out for that. Uh, if you care about money issues, obviously that's something that uh, we write a ton about. And, you know, we exist here to really, as our name would suggest, get inside. Uh, and uh, that's what we're trying to do inside the campaigns, inside politics and, uh, you know, inside the heads of the people who are going to be making uh, lots of the big decisions here too. So that, that's my, that's my elevator pitch for you. Well, uh, I have loved the stuff you guys have done, and I am a a, a subscriber to the the uh, premium platform that you guys have, where you have a lot of excellent stuff, and I would recommend it to all of the PX3 listeners. Uh, uh, what is what is the program called again? What is their premium the pre the BI premium service? BI Prime, and uh, reach out to me if anyone has any questions. I'd be happy to answer those questions uh, for them and even maybe even hook them up with a uh, discount oh, subscription. Oh, I tell you what, guys, hit them up on Twitter at Dave Leventhal. Make sure that you uh, that you that you get one of those uh, uh, promo codes. Thank you so much, Dave. Hey, thanks a lot. Great to be with you, man. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. I got a little gift for you guys, though. I got a little gift for you guys. If you've stayed to the end of the show, then after the uh, theme song plays at the end, I want you to stay a little longer. Because if you were a fan of the first season of my show, Raise the Dead, my history deep dive into the 1960 election, Rejoice, rejoice. Season two is closer than you think. Indeed, it will be my October surprise. First week of October. Three episode season, shorter than the last one. I know, I know. 
but I think it's the best stuff that I've ever done, and I will have the trailer for it right behind this episode. It is all about the 1964 election, so if uh, you liked season one, you're going to love season two. All of your uh, favorite characters that you followed, real life people, are back. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, one of them doesn't make it out of the first episode. Okay. Uh, if you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You want to follow me on Twitter, it is at JustinRYoung. A reminder to watch our debate prep. Bush first Gore. We're going back to 2000 on uh, Monday, September 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash JustinRYoung. Of course, none of this would be possible without our Titanic $10 tier. They are as follows. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob, Wilson, D-Laser, Dallas Danger, Taylor, your boy, Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah, Jimmy Montana. Vote for Trump 2020. I guess we're going there now. We're getting close to the election. Less than 60 days. People are willing to pay for the real estate wherever they want. Uh, Martin, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Neil, Archie, Logan, Darren, ha Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, Paul, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Just Another Pilot, Mike, uh, that's middle-aged Mike, The Gen, Ben and Ellen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, Andrew, Chad, IPMP.com, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, TCIMP, Glenn Wolf, Jelly Scoop, Brad, and Richard Pierce. Again, if you want to be a part of their clique, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about still going in many ways it's gone better john f kennedy was about to do what he does best run for president and win a second term until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history and everyone wants a piece of the action my name is Justin Robert Young, and in the new season of my political history podcast, Raise the Dead, we tell the epic tale of 1964. Race riots, vile television ads, a secret Senate sex den, and the most famous legislation to come out of Congress in a generation. Moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world. News dies and becomes history. But tonight... We raise the dead.
vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>